Today's passage is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 14. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd of the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger will receive the wait, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exalting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is, alike, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for reading for us. And uh, good morning to all of you. And for those of you who are here for the first time, my name is Z. I'm the pastor here at One Covenant Church. Uh, so good to see all of you. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive uh, from God's word this morning? Lord, we thank you so much that this is your word, that you speak to us, you strengthen us, you encourage us. We pray, Father, that as we come into your presence through your word, that we would indeed meet Jesus face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the website of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, if you click on the section that says visitors, you will find these amazing words of welcome. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who struggle and desire victory. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these words are so moving that a pastor by the name of Ray Ortland took these words off the website, modified it, and he has been using it as a call to worship in his church every single Sunday. And he has moved many hearts. The story is told of a big, burly man, a real man's man that stepped into this church. He looked around, looked a bit feminine. So he said to himself, this church is not for me. And Ray Ortland gets up. He gives this call to worship. The man says he burst into tears. And he has been at this church ever since. 
And these words have sparked off some kind of a phenomenon. Many churches around the world right now are using these words as a call to worship, inviting people into the presence of their gentle and lowly Savior. Other churches have printed out these words and put them up either on an overhead or uh, on the slide so that people, as they enter church, know that they're coming into the presence of a gentle, humble, and lowly Savior. I've been deeply moved by these words. They strike a chord in my own heart. And perhaps they strike a chord in your heart too. Because perhaps it reminds us of the words of Jesus himself who says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, this is what church is all about. This is what Sunday morning is all about. But many times, friends, I don't know about you, I'm talking about myself, I feel like as I enter church, I come in as an absolute failure. I've done so many things during the week that I feel I've failed. And coming to church feels like yet another thing to fail at. Will I keep the children quiet? Will I preach well? Will I speak well? What will people think of me? Can I just sit in a corner somewhere? I feel like church is something else for me to fail at. But then, on most Sundays, something happens. Either during the call to worship, or, or a song, or a hymn, or prayer, or, or even an announcement, maybe even a sermon, or someone having a casual conversation with me, something clicks in my heart in the worship service. Something reminds me that although I'm a great sinner, I have a great Savior. And although I'm a great failure, I have a great and faithful friend who sticks closer than a brother. And friends, that is what church is supposed to be about. We're not a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. And maybe that's why Peter focuses our attention in the last section of First Peter back on the church, back on the family of God. And he gives us two final exhortations in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. He says we're to serve one another humbly, verses 1 to 7. And we should resist the devil firmly, verses 8 to 11. My friends, we would be mistaken if we think that Peter is giving us yet another two things to fail at. Because the reason why he's giving us these two things is found at the very end of the letter at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Peter draws the letter of 1 Peter to a close, and he says this. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, everything that he has said from beginning to end in this letter, everything that he said about the church is to help you and I stand firm in the true grace of God. Everything that he has given to us is to help us be firmly established, unshaken and strong in the sturdy foundation of the unmerited favor of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, if you and I are to stand firm in grace, we can't do it alone. We will need one another. And I suspect that's the reason why Peter focuses our attention in his last words to us on the church. So how does it work? How does the church help us stand firm in grace? Let's see how it works. Number one, 
serve one another humbly. Come with me to verse 1. Now you notice that in verse 1 to 7, Peter is focusing on two things. How we are to lead in the church and how we are to follow. And he says to both leaders and to followers that we are to lead humbly and to follow humbly. If you look at verses 1 and 2, he focuses on the elders, the shepherds of the flock of God who exercise oversight. He's focusing on the leaders. He's using a very familiar analogy to the people of that time. God's people are like a flock of sheep. And God's leaders are supposed to be like shepherds that care for the flock of sheep. But friends, if you look at these verses, you'll notice that actually Peter doesn't really focus really much on the role. He, he mentions them, but what his focus is on is much deeper than that. He doesn't focus on what they do. He focuses on how they do what they do. Peter focuses on the manner and the motivation for the leadership. And therefore, friends, although Peter is specifically speaking to the elders and the shepherds and the overseers of the church, the broad principles in this passage apply to every single one of us who lead in one way or another in Jesus' church. He's getting to the heart of leadership. He's getting underneath what we do to the manner and motivation of the heart. And Peter says three things. Come with me to verse 2. Firstly, he says that those in God's church are to lead not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Do you know what that means? It means that you lead in God's church, not because people want you to lead, but because God wants you to lead. Not because people tell you that you should lead, but because you have a sense on your heart that God is the one who is calling you to lead. In other words, you're called to lead people as God pleases rather than as people pleases. Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Leaders in God's church, friends, must lead for the sake of the glory of Christ. Leaders in God's church must seek to please God and not please people. Friends, if we are to stand in grace together as a church, you will need leaders who focus on pleasing God and not on pleasing you. And friends, if we are to be a church that stands firm in the grace of God, we will want these leaders. Do you know why, friends? Leaders who lead to please you will indulge you. They will indulge you and your fancies, but they will never lead you for your good. And Peter is saying, the kind of leaders in God's church that you want and that you aspire to be, must be those that are pe not people-pleasers, but God-pleasers. Those who seek to lead you to Christ for your good, not for your fancies. The second thing he says in verse 2 is that they must lead not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. They should not be calculating what they can get out of it, but spontaneously. Friends, if we're to stand firm in grace, you need to lead, we need to be led by leaders who are not building a platform for themselves, who are not serving merely for the compensation or the benefits or the privileges of leadership. They're serving and eager for your growth and your gain, not their own. Thirdly, look at verse 3. Peter says that they are to lead 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, but being examples. Friends, if we are to stand firm in grace together, we need leaders who are not there just to boss people around. We need leaders who are not there for the power trip. We need leaders, not, not those who just like telling people what to do. We need humble leaders who set an example for people to follow. Our greatest lever as leaders is not what we say. It's how we live and what we do. And friends, if we are to be a church that stands firm in the grace of God, we need to be led by people like these, and we need to be people like these, those who are not domineering, but are examples to the flock. We are fleshing out in real time and in real relationships what it means to follow Jesus. And the truth is, friends, the only way you will get leaders like these and shepherds like these as if we, is if we look to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Peter focuses our attention on the chief shepherd, on Jesus Christ. And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you see what he's saying here? Yes, you are supposed to be an earthly shepherd. Yes, you're supposed to lead God's people. But you can only shepherd and you can only lead the way God wants you to lead and wants you to shepherd if you yourself, leader, are being led by Jesus. And if you yourself, shepherd, are being shepherded by the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Think along with me, friends. If we truly understood the heart of Jesus for us, how he loves us, he's for us, he's committed to us, then we won't serve out of compulsion. We'll serve willingly because he has given himself willingly for us. If we truly understand what he has given to us at the cross of Calvary and in his resurrection, we have everything in the world. We will not serve for shameful gain, verse 2, but eagerly for the gain of God's people. And friends, if we've tasted his gentleness, we've tasted his forgiveness, if we've tasted his kindness to us, we will not be domineering, but we will be examples for the flock as we follow his example. Friends, the only way that we can have shepherds and God's leaders humble is if they will look to Jesus. The only shepherds that will shepherd as Jesus shepherds are those who are shepherded by Jesus himself. And friends, these are the kind of leaders that we need to put in place. And these are the kind of leaders that you should want. And these are the kind of leaders that you should aspire to be. Shepherds after the heart of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But friends, that's only part of the story. Because if the shepherds are to shepherd humbly and to lead humbly, the followers and the members are called to follow humbly. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject, it says, to the elders. Now, friends, Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that all God's people are supposed to obey your leaders and submit to them. So why is Peter here singling out the younger, or in some versions, the younger men? Why is he singling them out? Is he saying only these guys have to submit to the elders? So, you know, when we eventually elect elders, you look at their birthday and you find, hey, 
younger than me, yeah, that I don't need to submit to him? Is that how it works? Well, no, my friends, because Hebrews 13, 17 tells us all of us, all of us are to obey the leaders and submit to them. It's not their age. It's the office that they've been given. So all God's people are called to submit to the leaders that God puts in place. So why in the world, verse 5, does Peter single out for us the younger or the younger men? My friends, perhaps, just a little guess, it's because it's especially hard for the zealous and young to submit to those who are older than them. But you know, aging is a very strange thing. I think it was Billy Graham who said, you know, one day you're young, and in the blink of an eye, the next day, you're old. And I kind of feel that, you know, like one day, you know, you're in school, learning to be literate, and in the blink of an eye, the next moment, you're older, and you're sitting in parliament. You know, it's, it's like in the blink of an eye, you're young, and suddenly you're old. One day, I feel like I'm in my 20s, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, in the blink of an eye, I'm properly now in my 40s, uh, properly middle-aged, still on Facebook, checking the news, no idea how Instagram or TikTok works, kind of out of touch. Now, I'm not saying you, I'm just talking about me here, okay, me. When I was younger, and even now, as I think about people that are 20 years older than me, I kind of find it hard to submit to them. I kind of find it hard to take their opinions seriously. I'm not saying you, me, okay? I kind of think maybe they're out of touch. You know, maybe they're not so enlightened. You know, we hadn't invented the word woke yet, but you know, they're not so enlightened. And, and so I find it hard to, to, to follow them. And now you tell me to submit to them. Uh, it, it's difficult. But 20 years on, as I look back at my 20 years younger self, there's so many things that I thought and things that I did and things that I believed that if I look back at those now, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed by what I did. Now, if I project myself forward another 20 years, and I look back at myself now in my 40s, how many things in my life am I going to be embarrassed about? Now, yes, friends, you know, we look at someone who is older, and we think they may have, they're out of date. They're not in touch. They, they don't really understand what's happened in the world. And, and it could be true. But friends, there's still things we can learn from people who are out of touch, people like me. You know why? Because perhaps people who are older than us have made more mistakes than us, have suffered more than us. So they may not know as much as us. They may not be so well connected with what's happening on the ground, but they can still teach us. Now, friends, on the other hand, sometimes it's hard. It's hard for older people to take younger people seriously. Right, we have an attitude that, you know, I have lived through a lot more, right? Sorry, it's me. Okay, right? I've eaten more salt than you have eaten rice. And so I can't take you seriously. But that would be a mistake as well. That would be a tragic mistake. Because we need to learn about what's happening in the world as it is. What Peter is calling for is humble leadership and humble followership. What Peter is calling for is for cooperation. A cooperation where those who are older can say to those who are younger, hey, I, I may not understand what's happening in this world. And I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm here to give you wisdom, to guide you along. I'll listen if you must. But hey, can you teach me 
what's important to people your age? Can you show me how to use uh, that app? Because I don't know how to use it. Older people need that kind of humility to say that they can learn from people who are younger. And younger people, maybe, we need the humility to say to, to those who are older, I may not say things the way you say them. I may not share the same views. But perhaps you can teach me because you've lived longer, you've suffered more. And that is what Peter is calling us to. But you know what it will take? It will take humility all around. Look at verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Some sentiments say all of you. All of you. Not just the young, not just the old. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What will it take for us to stand firm in grace? Humble shepherds, humble sheep, humble leaders, and humble members. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And he tells us why. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is allergic, someone said, to the proud, but he rewards the humble. What we will need more than anything else to stand firm in the grace of God together is humility. Humility from everyone. And Peter and God are so concerned about humility that in verse 6 and 7, Peter tells us that there is a future and a present blessing associated with humility. If you pursue humility, that's a future blessing that's yours. But there's also a present blessing that's yours. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. There is a future blessing to humility. The world tells us that we must do everything to grab honor for ourselves, to grab position for ourselves. Jesus tells us, humble yourself today under the mighty hand of God, and tomorrow he will exalt you. Humility has an end date. Humility is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be honored and exalted by Jesus. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God today in this life and in the life that is to come, God will exalt you. You will reign with him. That is the future blessing of humility. Humble yourself today and you will be exalted tomorrow. Exalt yourself today and you will be humbled tomorrow. That is the future blessing of humility that Peter puts before us. But there is also a present blessing of humanity that he puts before us. Look at verse 7. You know, he tells us in verse 6, humble yourselves. But verse 7, he fleshes out for us practically what it means to humble yourselves. You see that phrase that the ESV has translated, casting all your anxieties on him. It feels a bit awkward, but the reason why the ESV is translating it that way is because the casting is actually a participle. 
It's describing how you humble yourself. It's describing verse 6. So verse 7 is actually telling you how you do verse 6. Verse 6 says, humble yourselves. Verse 7 says, by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So how do you humble yourself? It's not to walk around looking glum. Peter says, to humble yourself, you cast your anxiety or your cares on the God who cares for you. In other words, he's drawing a link between humility and anxiety, between pride and peace. He's saying, friends, that if we humble ourselves, we can be rid of anxiety and we can have the peace of God in our hearts. Now think along with me, friends. Why are we anxious? One of the reasons we're anxious because we believe and we think that it's all up to us. It's up to me to make something of my life. It's up to me to make something of my family. It's up to me to fix my life, to fix my family, to fix my children, to fix my church. It's up to me to fix the problems in this world. It's all up to me. And then we go into the world or we go home to our families and we realize that we're not in control. We don't have the power to change people or situations, but we feel that we must. And so we're anxious. Friends, we're anxious because we think we're called to do something in our own strength. We think we're responsible for something that we're not. That is why we're anxious. And friends, you know what that is? The Bible says that's pride. It's pride, my friends. And so proud people are usually very anxious people. What does humility do? Humility invites us, even as we're responsible to do the things that God calls us to do, humility invites us to look to the one who is truly powerful, truly in control, who truly can change things. That's what humility does. That's what it means to cast your cares on him, to recognize, yes, I'm responsible for doing what I must, but I leave the outcomes to the one who's truly powerful, who's truly in control. I'm not in control. I cannot influence the universe, but there is one who can, and there is one who does. And more than his power, more than his control, Peter focuses our attention on another attribute of God. Look at verse 7. The one in control, the one in power, is also the one who cares for you. That is what it means, friends, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, to recognize his power, to recognize his control, to recognize his care for you, your family, your career, your future, and to cast your cares on him, to give it to him. That's why I look at verse 14. What does Peter close his letter with? A note of peace. Verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So what we need is humble leadership, but also humble followership if we're to stand firm in the grace of Christ. But there's one more thing. In verses 8 to 11, 
Peter wants to highlight to us that there will be an enemy that comes along that resists our humility, that resists grace, that will try to cause havoc as we seek to stand firm in the grace of God together. Look at verse 8. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Another translation, stay alert, watch out. You have to be alert to see what this person is doing. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You are an adversary, an enemy that is fighting against your peace. You have an adversary, an enemy who is fighting against your humility. You have an adversary, an enemy who is fighting against us here in the church. He's the devil. Now the word devil is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Satan. And the word Satan means slanderer and accuser. And John 8.44 says that Satan is the father of lies. And Peter tells us he's roaring, he's like a roaring lion prowling and seeking prey. He wants to have us. He wants to devour us. Where, friends, will we see Satan prowling and praying? When you hear slander. When you hear accusation. When you hear lies. And unfortunately, Satan has a foothold even in the church. Instead of speaking honorably with one another and truthfully with one another, we lie, we slander, we accuse, we fight over the silliest of sins rather than speaking openly with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't look for all those kind of dramatic demonic manifestations, friends. Where Satan is at work is where there is gossip, slander, accusation, and lies. That is what will prevent us from being humble. That is what is going to affect our peace. And that is what is going to affect our standing firm in grace. And Peter says we're to resist. Look at verse 9. Resist Satan. How do we resist Satan? Not through incantations and special rituals. Verse 9 says we resist Satan by being firm in your faith. Satan will come with lies and accusation and slander. But by our firm faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we resist him. When he lies, we bring the truth to him. When he slanders, we bring honor. When he accuses, we give the benefit of the doubt. Friends, Satan hates the truth. Satan hates grace. Satan hates the gospel. Satan hates the unity of the church. And he will do everything in his power to dupe you into believing that the true enemy is not him, it's the person sitting next to you, your spouse. He will do everything in his power to dupe you to think that the person who is in your church, your fellow brother and sister in Christ, he's the enemy. Or maybe it's the elders of the church or the leaders of the church or the ministry coordinators. He will do everything in his power to dupe you into thinking that those are the enemies. They're not, my friends. 
Satan is the enemy. And if we are to resist Satan, we need to be firm in our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to know the truth of the gospel and stand firm in the grace of God. You see, Satan will lie to you, especially when you're suffering. He will say to you when you're in pain, God doesn't care for you. Your suffering is abnormal. No one cares. No one can help you. You're better off without these people and without God. Sort it out by yourself. What does the truth of the gospel say? Look at verse 9. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. You're not the only one suffering with this issue. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Suffering, friends, is part of the Christian life. God is using your suffering to purify you, to make you more and more like him. You are not alone, and suffering is not abnormal. You need to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on your own heart and on the heart of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when they're suffering. When you are suffering, Satan lies to you again. He says to you, the world is all that there is. There is nothing beyond the grave. This is a recipe for disaster, a recipe for despair. One of the reasons we find it so hard to to cope with COVID-19, one of the reasons I think is because there doesn't seem to be an end date to this. Is it five months? Is it five years? Is it 50 years? We have no idea. There's no end date to it. Well, friends, the fact that there is a world to come and a judgment that is to come tells us that there is an end date. There is an end date to pain and suffering. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As God is saying to us today, in the truth of the gospel, despair will not win the day. God is saying to you, in the truth of the gospel today, that your suffering will come to an end. God is saying to you, in the gospel today, that there is a world to come. That this world is not all that there is. There is a world of bliss and joy to come. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, there will be a day, a final day when Christ comes again, where things will be restored, where you will be confirmed and strengthened and established forever. And friends, as Peter thinks about these things, As you and I ponder these things, even when we're suffering, Peter cannot help but praise God. Look at verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the more you ponder the truth of the gospel, even when things are hard, even when the trials are real, even when it feels like there's no end to to all that I'm wrestling with, as you gaze upon Christ 
and what he brings to us when he comes again. It should invoke in us praise and adoration. But friends, the journey toward that begins with the small and the little things in life. Leading, following, resisting. It begins even with things as simple as a cup of coffee. John Stott was a great Christian leader. He was based in the UK, and in 2005, the Time magazine ranked him among the 100 most influential people in the world. I was privileged to, to just catch a tail end of his ministry in the UK in the late 90s. Spoke to him once, just once. He had a study assistant. He usually has a study assistant. Most of them come from America for whatever reason. They go to the UK. They spend about four years serving Uncle John, and then they'll go back and eventually become pastors. I met one of his assistants, a guy by the name of Corey Whitmer. Uh, we were in the same Bible study group together. I'm not sure whether he'll remember me. We had a few conversations, but he was very busy. Uh, so Corey Whitmer was one of his assistants. This is when John was probably in his 80s. And uh, recently I read an anecdote uh, of John from Corey that I found really, really quite uh, encouraging and, and quite convicting. John, John Stott died about 10 years ago. This year would have been his 100th birthday. So Corey said, you know, Stott was in his 80s. You know, his most productive hours are in the morning. So he would spend hours at work, hunched over his desk, reading a manuscript or writing something. At 11 a.m. every morning, Corey would bring a cup of coffee and place it next to John Stott's hand. And John Stott would mumble the words, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. So initially, Corey found this really amusing. But over time, it began to bother him. How could the great John Stott be unworthy of a cup of instant coffee? So one morning, John Stott mumbled as usual, I'm not worthy. And Corey decided to respond. He said, sure you are. Of course you are. Uncharacteristically, John Stott stopped working. He looked up at Corey with a mix of both seriousness and playfulness, and he said to his young American study assistant, you haven't got your theology of grace right. Corey said to John Stott, Uncle John, it's just a cup of coffee. Stott said to him, it's just the thin end of the wedge. Now, that's a British idiom, which means that something might seem small, but it has serious consequences. Do you see John Stott's point here? If you think that you deserve that cup of coffee, that somehow you're worthy even of that cup of instant coffee, rather than seeing it every day as a gift of God's grace, over time, you start to think that you deserve a lot of other things in your life. You become self-entitled. You become proud. You become anxious. But if you see even that cup of Nescafe as a gift of God's grace to an undeserving sinner, you begin to see all of life as a gift. And more than that, when you see 
that God hasn't just given you instant coffee or gourmet coffee. He's given you Christ, His only Son, to die and rise for you, an undeserving sinner. It humbles you. It fills your heart with thanksgiving. It fills your heart with joy. It takes away your anxiety. And it sets your hands to service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace in which we stand right now. And Father, we come before you and we say to you how often we do not want to stand in grace. We want to stand in our own superiority. We want to stand in our own sense of right and wrong and good and bad. And as a result, Lord, we're proud, we're anxious, we're hurting, we're broken, and we're lonely because we've pushed other people away. Father, help us see that even if we've done this today, that you draw near to us, not with words of condemnation, but with words of welcome. Not with words of harshness, but a heart that is beating with love for us. I pray for each of us, Father, here today, many who are struggling with things in their hearts that we can tell nobody about. Draw near to us today, Lord, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Bring us near again and remind us again, Lord, that though we are great sinners, we have a great Savior. And though we are great failures, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Jesus' name we pray.